I think you know uh, I'm no expert on this. Uh, we do this with fear and trembling because I uh, have a heart for the church, but not because I know all the answers, but because I think we need to open a dialogue about what is happening in the church. Let's pray. Lord, as we come before you with your word tonight, we pray that our hearts might be softened towards what you have to show us. Give us a heart for the kingdom and a heart for the world that we can show love to the world but draw them to the kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a disturbing trend in the last few years in the Peterborough area which has brought to my attention a symptom of something bigger. This is St. Paul's Presbyterian Church, which we all recognize as one of the landmarks here, which has now been reduced to rubble. I, it's, and um, 160 years. And there's another one, St. Andrew's United Church, which has been sold for who knows what purpose. We know that uh, Knox... Uh, United Church was sold recently, used for uh, low rental housing. These at one point were monuments to the me message of Christ. They at one point preached the gospel. But something has happened. But it's not just here. We know that in the United States, as far as I could find out on a statistics, 3,700 churches per year close in the United States. I couldn't get statistics for Canada. Now, there are many reasons for that. Uh, some maybe because they're out in the country and people tend to drive to bigger centers and so on. Uh, I understand that. But I think there's another thing that we have to be aware of, and that is... Many of these churches, not all of them, many of them started with something simple like uh, maybe Genesis chapter 1. Uh, not literal. Maybe it's just uh, sort of symbolic. Or the miracles had to explain them scientifically. They're just not miracles. There's something else. Um, virgin birth of Christ. Little details in Scripture, not trusting the Scripture anymore, until finally all these little lies accumulate to the point where they're uh, becoming a social institution rather than a preacher of the gospel. And then people say, well, what's the point? I can get that at the Lions Club, Rotary Club, uh, PTA meeting, and so on. And so we know how the, this happens. It's, it's not a secret. That's in our culture in North America. It's a little different around the world. We see uh, samples of this, let's say, in China, where the government has actually demolished churches uh, because they don't fit in with their culture. And in India, Sri Lanka... Nigeria, Cameroons, we see other persecutions from uh, local people who don't like Christian churches. So we have two extremes here. One group of churches is infiltrated by the culture so that they actually assimilate with the culture and the lies of the culture and die. And there's another set of churches which are uh, attacked by the culture. But I would challenge you, when you think about it, are there any countries in this world which are pro-Christian? And I would dare say I can't think of any. There may be the odd African nation which has a Christian president or something like that that I'm not sure, but there's always, in every area of this world, there's um, an attack on the Christian faith. Now, we can react in many ways. We can say, oh, poor us. Or we can react scripturally. 
And hopefully we can, uh, in the next few weeks, come up with, um, collectively, a reaction which is according to what Scripture has to say. It's rather interesting that we sang one hymn tonight, 415, that says this, He giveth more grace when the burdens grow greater. He sendeth more strength when the labors, in, labors increase. To add, added affliction, he addeth in mercy. To multiply trials, his multiplied peace. We're going to talk about that tonight because that's where we're going in Scripture. So I mention this because um, this is very relevant to each one of us personally because as Jason pointed out on Sunday, it doesn't take very much for us to start believing a lie and relapse into the culture. Look at the Galatian church. And we can point a finger at them, we can point a finger at the Israelites in the wilderness, but we're no different. And we can find a neighbor who convinces us of something, and, uh, yeah, that sounds about right. But um, we have to be careful. This, uh, any church is just one generation from failure as long as, we don't, as long as we would allow some of these lies to come in. Now, it doesn't start with a church dying. It starts with one person who then convinces someone else and someone else until finally the congregation as a majority so you see what happens, and um, we, that's very relevant to each one of us. At one point, uh, Christianity was a, a major influence in our culture. We know that. There are churches all over the place. Now, it's a detriment. The way, what we stand for is contrary to the majority of our culture. Look at what happens when... Uh, a Bible-believing individual uh, gets into public office, they immediately uh, have a target on their back. And some of the first questions that are asked by the media is, what's your stand on abortion? What's your stand on gender issues, right? And once the answer comes back, it's just incessant attack, attack, attack. So, have I made you mad yet? Um, <laughs> It's the reality that we have to be aware of. We know that. But it's not new. Back in uh, the 18th century, there was this man by the name of Jean-Jacques Rousseau. If you know French history or Middle Age history, uh, he's quoted as saying, man is born free, but everywhere he's in chains. And you say, well, that's kind of an innocent statement until you realize what he's saying. He's saying that when we're born, we're free, but as soon as we enter the culture, the church puts us in chains with its morality. And he fought all his life to free the culture from the chains of the church and uh, fought for a progressive society. And he was a great proponent of the French Revolution, of course, which threw off a lot of the authority of the time. And it hasn't stopped since. That was just the beginning. Now, the, um, the ladies have been studying First Peter. And uh, I conferred with um, the teacher. <laughs> and I said, do you mind if I go back over some of the passages that you've been studying to hopefully give a little more reinforcement, maybe a different angle to some of the things that you've been learning? We're not going to do it uh, in great detail because uh, how long have you been doing it? For how many weeks? <laughs> and we're going to take maybe four or five weeks. So, uh, But we're going to pick out some skeleton ideas from First Peter that, attack, that addresses this situation. Now, it's interesting because um, when we look at First Peter chapter 1, verse 1, This is what Peter writes. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. We'll stop there. Interesting statement. Now, I know some other versions would say something like aliens and strangers or something like that. But elect exiles 
of the dispersion. What had happened was people, particularly in the area of Jerusalem and Judea, had come to Christ, but we know what happens. Now they're ostracized by their families. They are attacked by, you remember the stories around the time of Saul and persecuting the church? Many were killed in prison and so on. So they scattered, and we read in Scripture that they actually, there was no one, hardly anyone left in the church in Jerusalem anymore except the apostles. Everybody had just fled away from this persecution. Well, um, where are they going to go? And you can imagine families broken, uh, brothers and sisters separated, maybe husbands and wives, uh, parents and children. Once someone came to Christ and fled, they had to leave behind all their relatives, probably a lot of their belongings, uh, and uh, their neighbors, and the culture. Where did they go? Well, Peter says here, he's writing to uh, people in these areas. It says, in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, in the ladies' group, you know where that is. That's up in the northern part of Turkey. So, Israel is down below Syria there on the right. They've had to, you you know, they didn't have cars and buses and so on. They'd have to walk there with their whatever belongings they have, settle in this new area, didn't know anyone, probably different language, and they don't know anybody there. They're kind of feeling isolated, certainly persecuted, definitely marginalized, and misunderstood, because who are these people uh, coming into this culture? They're different than we are. They've got different beliefs. A man by the name of James W. Thompson wrote a commentary on the book of First Peter, and he calls it the church in exile, God's counterculture in a non-Christian world. And he's saying the church, in actual fact, you and I are in exile in our own culture. We are marginalized, we're ostracized, we're misunderstood, and sometimes attacked and persecuted even in North America. Our beliefs don't count anymore. We're not geographically exiled like they are, but we certainly are ideologically. And therefore, 1 Peter, being written to exiles, is written to us too, because the same thing is happening to us as happened to them. Do you understand? So it would be worthwhile seeing what Peter has to say as we go through this um, in the next few weeks. Now, um, much has been written by Bible teachers about uh, culture and counterculture, and we don't have to have uh, be writers of textbooks and so on to at least think about some of these things for our own lives and how we relate to people. We all should have some perspective on a worldview or how we respond to people who um, are in the culture, and of course then different from us. First of all, let's um, think of what certain words mean. What does the culture mean? Now, I think we all understand it. Um, it's, we can talk about uh, a culture of a certain era, like the 21st century, or we can talk about the culture of a certain area, like the Caribbean or in, uh, East Indian and so on like that. But what it does is it includes all these little areas that we've got listed, and then some. Uh, you could probably think of more. And so uh, it was rather interesting. I came across something f- written by Japan Today, which is promoting Japan. Um, and they say that according to uh, foreign visitors to Japan, they came up with the, this list of characteristics of the Japanese culture. And so we read them, and it says polite, punctual, kind, hardworking, respectful, shy, intelligent, grouping, formal, clean. And you say, well, why doesn't everybody move to Japan? <laughs> uh, but I have a sense that that's probably sanitized a little bit for the, for the <laughs> term. 
And so you hear some comments on this, and uh, people are saying, well, yeah, that's the way they want to project themselves, but you get behind closed doors, and they're an awful lot different than that. So let's try to be honest. I'm going to ask for something from you. If you were to take uh, or try to describe Canadian culture, what are some words or phrases that you would use to describe our culture? And give me some time to write them down. And if you come up with something the opposite of someone else, please don't fight over it. We, we just, uh, honestly, what, do you, what words would you use to describe or phrases? Um, I'll start you off. Let's say materialistic. Would you agree? Bill? Okay. Um, easily offended. What was the other one? Passive. Passive. And polite. Polite. <laughs> Liberal. Liberal. Now, we will make, try to incorporate this into later weeks. I'm sorry? Entitled. Entitled. Okay. <laughs> Is that polite? <laughs> Okay, what was the other one? What did you say? With Trevor, was that you? I said hockey. <laughs> <laughs> well, we could say uh, uh, entertainment. Uh, okay. Not easily entertained. Seeking entertainment. All right. what, uh, what was the other one? Individualistic. Yes. <laughs> okay, I'm saying sorry. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. One more. How do you describe people who buy stuff or buy Materialistic? We got that. Okay. What is it? Tolerant. Tolerant? How do you define the word anymore? <laughs> okay. Uh, what do we say? Uh, I, yeah. Okay. What's the opposite of discerning? Gullible. Diana. Okay. All right. So we've got a handle on that. Whether I can use those another night or not, uh, we won't have it up here. So those are some of the phrases that we would use for our culture. Now, um, just some examples of some things that for the last couple of months I've been collecting little clips and so on just to kind of get some direction of where we can go with this. And I encountered a few that we're just going to look at for a few minutes. This is from Jared Wilson. He's a, um, a believer, a, a writer. He's from Southern Baptist Persuasion, I think, south of the border. Um, and he writes this, something to think about. Sometimes preachers of short sermons defend the act by noting that short attention spans common to our culture. But the church isn't called to reflect the culture back to itself. There's a phrase that stuck out to me. The church is not called to reflect the culture back to itself, but to train followers of Jesus to live in countercultural ways. So consider this. You don't want your church service to aid the culture in eroding people's shortened attention spans. In an age of short attention spans and soundbite philosophy, we ought to work towards our people's endurance, patience, and all the other kingdom-worthy values that substantive preaching supports. 
I'm not talking about asking Jason to preach for three hours. No. <laughs> yeah, he already done. No. <laughs> when my, my kids were in Bolivia, they said you go to church on Sunday morning and the service lasts for at least three hours. And my brother went down and he preached. And when he finished preaching, they said, you're done so soon? Come on, we want more, you know. <laughs> so he said it was really tough. No, I think uh, we're fine here. But you know, I, I have a brother-in-law whose homilies are maybe 15 minutes. Uh, that's not teaching. And so um, he has a point here. And another area. We, um, those of us who have been through the Truth Project, remember that Del Tackett taught us that the family is God's, one of God's institutions. He designed the family. Well, the, the world is trying to change that definition. Here's a lady, her name is Samantha Kemp Jackson, who is a, a parenting expert. You know, once you have an expert, then everybody listens to them. <coughs> Host of the Parenting Then and Now podcast. She says, gender-based trends like gender reveal parties will be left in 2019, she hopes. The 2020s will see parents falling less on pink and blue or supposedly unisex colors, instead doing what was once the most important for them to teach, how to be a good person regardless of gender, she said. She also sees a shift happening towards less traditional family structures with more babies being born to same-sex couples and single individuals. The definition of family is going to continue to shift, she said, for a long time. By the way, people like this have self-fulfilling prophecies because people then start following their expertise. So you can see where this is headed. People had the idea that family you were born into is the only family you're going to have forever. Now we're seeing a lot of people letting go of their toxic family and shedding those ties. She sees more parents rejecting harmful relationships, even as they're technically with biological families. We can't redefine the nuclear family. God has defined that. Now, I'm not saying we can't have a church family because that's a spiritual connection. But I believe that God has designed the nuclear family, husband, wife, children, for a very good purpose. And we, we in the church can tend to start listening to the culture in that area. Here's another one you may raise your eyebrows at. <clears throat> when we were young, we, we had Archie comics, and in our eyes it was just... Now, in, in adult eyes, it's maybe not a monument of virtue, I agree. But since 2010, things have changed, and here's what's happening. Uh, Archie has a gay friend, Kevin Keller, who was then paired off by a same-sex marriage to an Iraq war veteran, Jughead Jones has declared himself asexual. Veronica Lodge, starring in a spin-off comic as Vampironica, a blood-sucking killer. Another spin-off series, Afterlife with Archie, featuring a zombie Jughead trying to kill and devour his friends and family. And yet another spin-off series, Chilling Adventures of Sabrina, featuring those occultism and character by the name of Madam Satan. And these are mixed in with some of the old classic Archie comics to, uh, to sell the new, um, what shall I say, thrilling comics. This is from the Reform Perspective in January 2020. We all know about the, the abortion debate and the fact that New York State has passed what they call a uh, Reproductive Health Act. Uh, very euphemistic, right? Um, at least they have a law. We don't even have a law. It's just the Wild West and abortions in Canada. This act denies the personhood of the unborn, creates loopholes for abortion at any stage of pregnancy, and loosens the qualifications for medical practitioners who perform the abortions. Proponents of the measure argued that New York's previous laws put a financial burden on women who want late-term abortions by forcing them to travel out of state. So, poor people. 
Likewise, uh, July 2019 report from the Institute of Women's Policy Research claims the inability to obtain an abortion for an unwanted pregnancy can push mothers and their other children closer to poverty. And so they're using the finance argument. And people listen to that um, in order to uh, validate what's happening. That's from World Magazine in January. One more, I think, that's going to uh, shock you. This is uh, from Forbes Magazine, a medium publication about personal development. They wrote about the self-help movement that's upending American Christianity. The Enneagram has recently found a passionate following in the evangelical world, drawing young believers steeped in astrology, self-care, and wellness. It's trying to uh, put typing people into nine basic personalities to um, cast off the shackles of your personality. Are you mad yet? <laughs> it can be depressing to see how our culture is going. And I only point this out because we have to realize that there is something out there, but I don't think we need to become experts at what's out there. What we need to do is become experts of what's in here and we'll recognize what's wrong out there. But when we are listening to the human reasoning and not what's in here, then we can be drawn away and fall into our lapse into, or, or do a relapse. Well, enough of that for now. I could go on. Countercultural. What does it mean? It's a way of life and a set of ideas that are completely different from those accepted by most of the society. I think that makes sense, right? Now, I ask you a question. When you read Scripture, and if you, I hope all of you have read through the Bible and, and can, are familiar with uh, the characters in Scripture, the people that God used, I know He used everybody for His purposes, but God used His specific people all through Scripture did they meld in with society and fit in, or were they a little uh, different than society? What would you say? Can you give me some examples, specific examples of somebody in Scripture that God used mightily who didn't fit in with the culture around him? Moses. Mo who's that, Moses? No, that's right. Remember, God spoke to Moses face to face. He's the only one. The rest had to hear it through a prophet, right? What were you saying? Joseph. Joseph, all right. Yeah. He didn't. With, uh, he didn't. didn't exactly. That's right. Daniel. Daniel, okay. Yes. Mm -hmm. Ruth. Yeah. Now, I'd like you to notice something about each one of these people. They stood out because they were different, but they also suffered as a result, right? Um, I know that's hard to hear, but it seems that that's how God works. He, he tries us to prove us before he can use us. And we have to realize that that may happen to us specifically. And... That's the thing that drives us to listen to the world is the fear of standing out. So, is counterculture the same as anti-culture? So, anti-culture is a sentiment of hostility towards a particular culture. And we see that even in our own culture where people will protest violently about something in the culture. Um, I'll ask another question. Can you think of any place where people of God in Scripture tried to overthrow the culture? Anyone speak out against human trafficking? Uh, try to stop the slave trade? Um, do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Pardon? Saul. Saul. Well, when he was saved. But he didn't try to, 
to cancel the Jewish culture, what he did is he worked on people's hearts. And we have to realize that if, if, we want, if we want people to react the way we are, their heart has to change. We can't force them by forcing their actions to change, right? Um, and sometimes we can be a little overzealous in being countercultural, and we become anti-cultural to try and change the culture, and we then destroy our message. We need to make sure that we have a stand on these things which are countercultural. There's no question, and we should have, as even you quoted tonight, have a reason for what we uh, believe. But we have to be very careful that we don't come across as being anti-cultural. Um, we can't expect people who are not of the kingdom of God to agree with a culture that has developed on scriptural principles. So if everyone in our government were to become born-again Christians and pass laws which were in agreement with scripture and cancel all the non-scriptural laws our culture would rebel from the grassroots because they are not converted. Do you understand what I'm saying? We wish that we could have that happen and that people would uh, follow, but I think that's, uh, it's not going to happen. Their hearts have to change. And that's what the Apostle Paul worked on. That's what Jesus worked on. Jesus didn't try and force anything on anybody but he certainly showed them how they changed their hearts. God has certainly pointedly given us teaching on what the standards of our culture should be. There's no question in Scripture. And we could start with uh, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. It's uh, interesting that... Uh, Men like um, John Stott wrote his message on the Sermon on the Mount. That's on three chapters of Matthew. And he calls it Christian counterculture. Um, 1978. 42 years ago. He says, possibly the greatest tragedy of the church throughout its long and checkered history has been its constant tendency to conform to the prevailing culture instead of developing a Christian counterculture. And that's why so many churches are dying. Dallas Willard, in 1997, wrote The Divine Conspiracy. It, too, is a commentary on three chapters of the Bible. It's a great expression of what the kingdom of God should look like in our hearts. He asks the question, do you get up in the morning trying to live with a kingdom mindset or are you trying to fit into the present culture? The greatest issue facing our world today, with all its heartbreaking needs, is whether those who by profession or culture are identified as Christians will become disciples of Jesus Christ, steadily learning from him how to live the life of the kingdom of heaven into every corner of human existence. That's living counterculturally. Now we can, there are other books on countercultural. There's David Platt's book. And what David Platt has done is he, uh, he calls it following Christ in an anti-Christian age. He goes into certain topics. He says, uh, he goes into um, abortion and uh, adoption, uh, human trafficking, and so on. Uh, so he takes the big issues, big ticket things, uh, which we already understand, and he shows how the church can be effective in these areas. For example, uh, if we're so dead against abortions, what are we doing about adopting all the kids that would be born if they weren't adopted, right? <laughs> um, so his church has gone into, uh, had a conscience about that. 
mind you, when he says that 150 people in his church adopted someone, he's got a church of how many thousands, right? <laughs> but he has a point. We can be anti-something without wanting to solve the problem. There's a point in the Truth Project, for those of you who've been through it, who you may remember, that Del Tackett asks um, uh, R.C. Sproul to talk about morals and ethics. Now, um, R.C. Sproul says that the word morality comes from the Latin word mores, which is a fixed morally binding custom of a particular group. Um, it sounds good. We like the idea of morality, but there's a word in there that kind of tempers a little bit, and that's the word custom. And the trouble with customs is they change, right? And it's actually, morals are what the majority of the group is doing. And so, um, you find that as the more and more people are doing s certain things, then that changes the morals as the uh, majority shift in their principles. When you think of 50 years ago, what the morality was, and today, you would say there's a huge shift in some of the things that are happening in our culture, right? And yet, things that are moral today would never have been moral back 50 years ago. That's what morality is. It's a changing, uh, morphing quantity. Then there's the term ethics coming from either the Latin or the Greek, almost the same. It's a discipline dealing with what is good and bad with moral duty and obligation. It looks like it's almost the same thing. But someone has to determine what the good and the bad is. Now, if you think of business ethics, for example, some business organization determines what those ethics are. So ethics is determined by a higher authority and passed down to be able to tell what's good and bad. We know that ultimately all ethics come from God and are not changeable. Unfortunately, in our culture today, the word morality and ethics is synonymous. We've lost the difference in meaning. As a matter of fact, they're almost reversed. You almost think that morality is more honorable than ethics anymore. Because you say, well, he has not very good ethic type of thing. But it's in the actual meanings of the word, ethics is a higher principle, and it comes from a higher authority. It's a standard which doesn't change. Morality is a shifting and uh, uh, can be changed according to the opinion of the majority of the group. Here is the sequence from the Truth Project. Where did Nathan go? <laughs> um, God said, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness before light, light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. God knows when the culture is going bad and doing what it shouldn't be doing. And he says, Woe to them. We have to be very careful that we don't support it. Here we go. All right. Oh, sorry. Oh, yeah. on the 
it's normal. And if it's normal, it's good. Because the good is determined by what is rather than by what ought to be. And in that sense, we have a crisis of the loss of the whole concept of that. Do you understand why we are so upset with statistics and survey today? It's the only way we can try to understand what is right and wrong. So we survey all kinds of things to find out what people are doing so we can figure out what is right and wrong. Is that the way we determine right and wrong? I'll tell you that leads to some horrible, ugly results. Have we been taken captive? The battle is real. See to it that no one takes you captive. In Barna's recent study, when he was trying to determine what percentage of the American population had a biblical worldview, the result of that study was pretty dismal. Only 4% of the general American population had a biblical worldview. And when it was sorted based upon the born again believers in America, it rose to an anemic 9%. Only 9% of born again believers in America have a biblical worldview. And that's only based on 10 fundamental questions. And then the rest of the survey determined that if you didn't have a biblical worldview, guess what? You pretty much lived just like them. Chuck Colson made a Start statement. He said, The church has seen their failure in recent decades. It's been the failure to see Christianity as a life system or worldview that governs every area of existence. And I agree with that. I think that is the big issue that we face. And the question now before us is what is your worldview? What is your worldview? One of the problems we've had in discussing this issue is the problem associated with trying to merge both a formal worldview and a personal worldview. Let me give you an idea of what we're talking about. A formal worldview, if you can picture a number of bookshelves up on the, on the case, and every one of those books are written on the spine has a formal worldview attached to it. Marxism, postmodernism, Islam, naturalism, secular humanism, Christianity. It is a comprehensive set of truth claims that purports to paint a picture of reality. And they are everywhere. And that is exactly what faces us today. But it's not just the formal worldviews that have their truth claims. But it is all those lies that bombard us from everything. It's the lie that leads to bulimia. It's the lie that leads to drug use. It's the lie that leads to infidelity. And they bombard us. I am not interested in whether or not you can answer the questions of what a formal worldview looks like. What I'm interested in is your personal worldview. And a personal worldview is a worldview that is composed of those individual truth claims that you have embraced so deeply that you believe they reflect what is really real. And therefore, they drive what you think, how you act, and what you feel. And that is what Jesus is getting at when he's talking about worry, he's talking about fear. What is it that you really believe? What is it that you believe is really real? Very seldom do we have a worldview that matches a formal worldview. Our worldview consists of all of these things that we have somehow bought consciously or unconsciously, and it drives how we act, what we feel, and what we think. What are the consequences when you buy the lies? You end up conforming to the world. The only found in Romans 12, 2. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We're probably living in the most anti-intellectual period in the history of the church. Not anti-scientific, not anti-academic, but anti-people, anti-mind. The Bible tells us that we are called as Christian people not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed in the way of Scripture 
Thanks, Nathan. Couldn't have said it better myself. Back to 1 Peter chapter 1, just for a few minutes. Here we have this group of people who may have felt rather isolated. Maybe there's nobody else in the town that they know. Peter somehow draws them together because he writes them all the same letter. He writes it to the whole works of them. He's saying, you're all in the same boat. You're not an island. You've got a whole bunch of other people who are in the same condition. And you want to understand that because you're now, you now are part of a bigger group. And he's going to now start presenting what that bigger group should start looking like. And that's what he's saying to you and me. So he starts off by talking to these people who are all up there in northern Turkey. 
And then in verse 3, he calls these people exiles. And what does he say in verse 3? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to the great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. I'll quit there. He caused us to be born again. He's trying to emphasize the fact that there's something new going on in your life. During the 1976 election south of the border, the press got a hold of this term because it was rather, I suspect, new to them, but they thought it was new to the whole of the culture. And they felt they had to describe to everybody what it meant to be born again, part of an evangelical group during the election that uh, Jimmy Carter came and was elected into office because he was a born-again Christian. So they defined all these terms uh, not really understand. And of course, then it became very popular. Everybody started to become born again about something. But the world didn't understand what that means and still doesn't. I believe that even Christians sometimes don't want, know what it means to be born again. We use other words like that. Um, we use the term uh, converted. We use the term uh, new life. Um, Jesus said, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Or sorry, Paul did. Paul wrote it in 1 Corinthians. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We memorized a little differently when we were younger. It was from the King James. I lost my place here. Um, behold, uh, all things, old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. We're new creations And so he's trying to emphasize the fact that no matter what's going on in your life, your tribulations, your persecutions, your hardships and difficulties, there's something bigger has happened inside. You're now a new person. Start dwelling on that. You are a kingdom person. You belong to the king, and you're now living in the kingdom of God. So he starts out saying that they're born again. He's caused us to be born again. And then what does he say? Born again to what? A living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So there's another important word that he's using right off the bat to these people. You've got some hope. They didn't have much hope in the culture that they came from. That's why they became born again. They recognized the fact that there's hope in Jesus Christ. There wasn't hope in what they're doing beforehand. Now, you see, what Peter is doing here is he starts off with this group who are probably really down in the dumps because they are experiencing the life of an exile. They're marginalized, persecuted, uh, opposed, misunderstood, and feeling sorry for themselves. And he says, you know, I've got to work on their inner attitude and their motivation before we start talking about what they're going to do about it, how are they inside? Recognize the fact that being born again now means that you can have hope, which you didn't have before. It's a tremendous motivator to have hope. And he uses some amazing descriptions there in verse 4. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Does it lift your spirits? I know a little while ago you were mad. Doesn't this make you feel better? Because that's where we are. We know the world is going to hell in a handbasket, but we're not. And we've got to start with us and recognize what we have in Jesus Christ. So we have hope. Maybe we forget that the world doesn't have hope. Think about what you read in the paper every day, what you hear on the news, climate change, forecasts of a financial crash, environmental damage by 
industry, major disasters, uncontrollable epidemics, polarization of political views, and that's just the second page of the paper. There's physical, sexual, uh, all kinds of t attacks, and um, there's no hope for this world. Can't control the gun situation, but we have hope. No matter what happens, what difficulties, what persecution, what marginalization, he's saying, have a different focus. Then he goes on. Let's start uh, moving down here to um, verse 5. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be real, revealed in the last time. That's part of the hope. Our full salvation is yet to be revealed. And then he says in this. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Rejoice. You remember what they've been through? And yet, he's saying rejoice. Is that being a little unrealistic? That uh, there's nothing to rejoice about. So he goes on and he says, Here, here's something. Um, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see, now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. He wants to instill in them an inner attitude of joy, a motivation for what they're doing is through joy in what God has given to us, independent of the trials that they're going in. And when we focus on the trials, when we focus on the marginalization and the misunderstanding of Christianity, we're going to get down the dumps when we forget about the fact that what have we got in the way of hope that we can rejoice in. And that's where we want to start off with tonight um, before we get into the series for the rest of the month. He's aiming at our attitude. We can't uh, go much farther. Um, there's hope, there's rejoicing. Um, a man by the name of Helmut Felix has observed that the joy we see in our culture at special occasions is hollow. Some of you who maybe as adults were saved can remember back to the days before and think of these celebrations. And he says it's hollow. Celebrations at days like New Year's is often manufactured to cover up the emptiness of having no hope. They turn to alcohol, drugs, immorality, or even entertainment to take their mind off the emptiness. We don't need that. We're kingdom-minded. We recognize our new life and our hope and rejoice no matter the circumstances. That's the message that Peter is giving to these people who feel like they're out there, no one around them, and they've been neglected. We at least have this, which is far better, isn't it, than what the world can offer us. So Jason has been telling us about the things that we have to be careful about that we don't relapse by buying into the lies of the culture. Del Tackett, in, his, in the Truth Project, says that every sin that besets us can be traced back fundamentally to the belief in a lie. can be traced back to fundamentally to the belief in a lie. So, the way we prevent that is we learn the truth and we'll recognize the lies. So we're going to take a few weeks to go through and see what Peter's uh, instructions to us as exiles will be. Let's pray, and then um, if you want to leave, you may, or we can talk. Lord, we thank you for your truth. We thank you that we can be confident in your truth. 
We pray that we might learn to recognize what is a lie so that we aren't drawn away by the world into the culture, that we can live counterculturally as you have purposed that we do. Thank you for what you're doing in each of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.